Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from cold, rainy, blustery New York City. Normally on our Thursday episodes, I'm co-hosted here with uh, Ryan uh, Goodman of uh, Just Security. Just Security is running a conference today um, on uh, FISA courts, the future of FISA courts. I, I look forward to hearing about that from Ryan and, uh, and some of his colleagues next week, perhaps. Uh, but for the moment, uh, we've got a very special episode where first we're gonna talk to a friend of ours Mika Oyang, who's the Vice President for National Security Program at Third Way, um, who's given some thought also to the impeachment trial, which began today, the day that we are um, taping this, uh, which is uh, Thursday, the 16th of January. And uh, then we will go after that uh, to a fascinating discussion with Fred Hochberg, used to be the chairman of the US Exim Bank, actually the longest serving chairman of the US Exim Bank, who has a new book, called Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word, and we will talk a little bit about trade issues, which the president brought up today um, as his primary sort of line of defense uh, when he said, you know, we, we, we had a great deal with China, we had a great deal with uh, USMCA, why are people, uh, you know, hung up on this hoax? They should be focusing on my trade achievements. So we'll talk a little bit about trade achievements as well in the second part of the episode. Uh, but first, We'll go to a great conversation with Mika Oyang. Hi, I'm joined as promised by Mika Oyang, who's vice president uh, for the National Security Program at Third Way and a former professional staff member on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and a regular friend of ours here. Hi, Mika. Hello. Um, you know, I was uh, um, really interested to see that uh, the other day you had a lawfare article on impeachment, um, which is not your usual sort of national security beat. Although, uh, let me just say to anybody who's not following you on Twitter, you should follow Mika on Twitter, uh, at Mika Oyang, uh, because you great commentary on all sorts of things. But the uh, article, uh, which you did with a colleague named Anisha Hindocha, is yes. that correct? Yeah. Um, is called the Senate impeachment trial, call the witnesses or concede the facts. Now, as our listeners know, we do these episodes on Thursdays, and this Thursday we saw the uh, ceremonial beginning of the Senate trial uh, with the Chief Justice coming in and getting the senators uh, to uh, swear an oath that you know, some percentage of them will actually adhere to. Um, and you know, we begin with the trial next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Uh, and of course, the big question is going to be, 
are there witnesses or no witnesses? Is this a trial or is this not a trial? You addressed that in this article, so maybe I could start there. What's the frame of the article? What's the thrust? Yeah, so the frame of the article is asking this question. If the Senate were to consider a motion to dismiss or some other sort of truncated process to say, we're just dealing with this before we get into a full trial, what are the legal analogies? What standards would apply? And then what would that mean for where we are? And in thinking it through, you know, you look at a motion to dismiss, and the standard on a motion to dismiss is you assume all the facts as presented by the non-moving party or in the best light for the non-moving party. In this case, it'd be the president's friends trying to dismiss and the house manager saying, no, we want to go through a full trial. So it would be all the articles of impeachment as alleged by the house. You assume them in their best light and assume all sort of disputes of fact in their favor. And then you decide whether or not as a matter of law that what the president did was okay or not. Um, it puts Republicans in this horrible position of having to say, look, it's fine that the president of the United States used American foreign policy to his personal end for a political benefit to investigate his rival and have this whole conspiracy to do it, and that he's allowed to do that under the Constitution. They could vote to do that. It has terrible implications for our democracy, for the powers of the president, what, you know, for what they would have to deal with if we had a Democratic president later on, um, or when we have a Democratic president later on. But you could decide that as a matter of law. But it also means that all the things that we have said about the president, and that we all suspect about the president, and Adam Schiff has said repeatedly on the floor of the House, are, are never disputed. He never gets the chance to defend himself and say, this is actually legitimate, and these witnesses aren't telling the truth or whatever defenses he's going to mount. Um, that's a real problem. And so we wanted to run through and explain why a motion to dismiss is not the way to deal with things. When there's disputes of fact, you have to take it to the trial to resolve those. And so it really was about, look, you can't just do this quick motion to dismiss. You have these disputes of fact. The way to resolve them is a trial with witnesses and introduction of evidence, and that's how we have to go forward. Of course, the Republican um, position at the moment, the Lindsey Graham position, but also the um, uh, uh, Susan Collins position, and 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 seemingly the the position of, of virtually everybody in the party is, well, look, the House did their best; they gave us some facts. Uh, we've been able to watch that, so let's just you know vote on what we think. You know, did they prove the case or not? Uh, as though the trial had actually taken place, as though it were not actually the Senate's responsibility to do a trial, but actually just the responsibility to reach a verdict on a trial that took place uh, in a house and in the House. And one of the things that we've seen, of course, since the House concluded its hearings, is that new information comes up every day. And most recently, we've had this uh, strange fellow, Lev Parnas, who works with. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who paid Rudy Giuliani something like half a million dollars to, to, to do work for him, uh, come back with letters and text messages and notes and, and commentary uh, that says, no, the president knew what he was doing. Bill Barr knew what he was doing. Vice President Pence knew what he was doing. Um, uh, and at the very, very least, whether you think Parnas is credible or not, 
it raises a lot of questions that couldn't have been addressed in the House because this information was not released, although the Justice Department had it at the time and chose not to release it. Um, and so how does that color your view of all of this? New facts that were not in evidence at the time of the House trial. Yeah, so we deal with this a little bit in the piece. You know, the Senate is acting like it's an appellate court and that the House finished its work and they are only their only job is to judge whether or not the House did an adequate job. But they're not actually an appellate court. In fact, the Constitution says they are supposed to be a trial. And when you're in a trial, new evidence can in, can happen over the course of the trial. They could come you know, last minute over the course of the trial. There's a whole phase of the trial that includes discovery. And so new evidence arising after you've had an indictment issue out of a grand jury is totally normal. But part of the problem that we have here is that the Republican senators and the House managers have very different mental models of the standard and the process that they are holding themselves to. And what appears to be happening is the Senate claims they're acting like an appellate court, but really what they are doing is acting like a lawyer representing a client and deciding whether or not they have to withdraw from representation of that client. And that's a really high bar because, right, people represent murderers and rapists and all kinds of horrible people, and they stay in there. Um, so that's sort of the way you can see Republicans thinking about this. Well, what would it take for me to say I can't represent, I can't be on this guy's team anymore? The Democrats, on the other hand, are thinking about this the way that the Constitution sets it up. The impeachment is like a grand jury. So that all they're trying to hit is right, probable cause. Was there probable cause to think the president has committed these alleged acts? And yes, we have that. And then you would go into the trial phase. And all this new evidence, which is so important to hear, should be presented before the Senate. And if they were serious about their job as jurors and not making up some other standard that's not actually in the Constitution – then they would want to look at all this new evidence. They demand to be able to get to the truth and understand these questions. And when they say, well, look, Lev Parnas is incredible, you would call him to the stand and you would cross-examine him. What's your history of lying? Were you really there? Who else can corroborate this? Somebody else has a different recollection. That's what a trial is for. But the Republican senators don't want to do that. So all this information that's coming out there, if they want to challenge it, they have to challenge it through the trial process. Now, you'll acknowledge that the Republican standard has changed 180 degrees from what it was during the Clinton impeachment trial. Oh, yes. Uh, because back back in the day, they were like, oh, no, we're going to bring up uh, – we're going to have witnesses, and we've got to prove the case, and, and so forth. Um, and so it seems like this is partisan because it is partisan. Um, and uh, it suggests that we are going to end up with a fairly unhappy uh, conclusion in the sense of preserving democracy or taking this process seriously. Now, having said that, you know, there, there, there are several things operating here, and one of them is an impeachment case, voting on articles of impeachment that were presented by the House um, on, you know, abuse of power and, and, and so on. But, but there's another dimension of this, and that is things really happened that need to be dealt with someplace. And one of the things that's come out of the Parnas uh, uh, evidence um, that has come to light recently um, is the nature of the effort to pressure 
uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch to leave her job. Um, and this ought to remind us of a few things. You know, you you run the National Security Program at, at Third Way. This is the first impeachment trial in the history of the United States that has national security and foreign policy issues at the center of it. Um, the people that the president was dealing with were not people who necessarily had U.S. interests at heart. And the president was willing to, to set aside U.S. national interests in a country that's extremely important to the national security, our national security and the security of our allies in Europe um, in order to achieve a political gain. Um, and so, so, so the question becomes something more is at stake here. It's not just an impeachment. Um, if the United States is, is, is continues to behave in this way, um, it, it puts us at risk. Um, and I, I'd just be interested in your reaction to that, and perhaps your reaction to the fact that, this, that there's, there were some menacing um, uh, uh, notes and texts regarding Ambassador Yovanovitch and all of this. Uh, and we haven't heard a peep out of the Secretary of State um, yeah. regarding you know, you know, his department and protecting his people. Yeah, I was actually quite concerned about those uh, texts when I first saw them that suggested that um, Mr. Parnas was in touch with a Republican operative who had uh, the ambassador under surveillance and um, perhaps had someone inside her security detail. Um, that Republican operative has said, look, that those are just some texts that I sent when I was drunk messing around with my friends. Um, and I was like, look, come on, that's what is this? We know who these people are. But then I had a conversation with a reporter who's actually covered this guy and said, actually, this guy is constantly drunk and is a buffoon and doesn't seem like the kind of person who would manage to be able to coordinate surveillance across the world to actually do this. So it is, this reporter believed that, um, that it would be unlikely that this actually happened. But at the same time, they pulled the ambassador because of security concerns, and it was certainly a very threatening environment. And so I think what you see happening now is the FBI investigating, talking to this individual, um, the Ukrainians investigating, asking for the FBI's help here. I think everyone is taking this quite seriously because you can't suggest that you are going to let threats to the security of a U.S. ambassador pass without comment. Um, I can't speak to why Secretary Pompeo has not said anything about this and about the importance of preserving the safety of American ambassadors. Um, but, you know, I, after having this conversation, I was a little less concerned that um, this particular individual was actually engaged in a nefarious plot against the ambassador. Um, but more broadly, in this question of like whether or not a president can do this going forward, I think this is really problematic. And I think it's problematic that the Republican Party does not seem at all interested in getting to the bottom of this. And I think that's in part because it appears from these texts that a huge number or a substantial number of their donors were involved in this effort, um, were funding Lev Parnas, were transferring money back and forth. Um, it, it looks like that some of the stalwarts on Fox News were receiving large amounts of money, retainers, millions of dollars, according to this interview between Parnas and Maddow, um, 
from Ukrainian billionaires who make their money by aligning themselves with Russia. Aside from the questions of whether or not this was political, there are huge questions of financial motives of the actors involved here. And I think it's really important that we do get evidence and do um, get witnesses who can talk about that piece of this, um, bank transfers and all that information, because I think you know, the old adage is follow the money, and I think there's a lot more here than we even think. Um, we know that the president is very interested in self-enrichment, and it would explain a lot about why he was so willing, um, and Rudy Giuliani, given his past career, were so willing to take on this, these issues. Yes, indeed. But, you know, there's even another dimension to it, which is that one of the Ukrainians uh, who uh, was essential to this plan to getting information on Biden, a former uh, prosecutor there, uh, said he would not give any information on Biden unless Yovanovitch got fired. And he sought that as a as a goal in this exchange. Uh, and the administration seemed to be like, oh, yeah, OK, we'll get rid of her. Um, and, and, and so that's a kind of horrible precedent in and of itself too, right? Yeah. Look, the idea that you would remove a U.S. ambassador so that you could get political dirt, or at least that's the administration's motivation, is really troubling. We, we created a uh, civil service, foreign service officers, um, these career positions to guard against this kind of political corruption so that you had a group of people who weren't dependent on the favor of the president the same way, that they served administration to administration so that, that wouldn't happen. And the idea that you would have to fall in line politically behind the president's attempts to kneecap one of his rivals to be able to keep your job is really contrary to the way that we have run the U.S. government since the end of the Civil War. And I think, you know, without you know, overstating this, the the one of one of the things that you, you, you strikes the uh, interested observer is that this administration was willing to do all of these things that were fundamentally corrupt things that played into the hands of Russians, that played into the hands of bad actors in Ukraine, that served the president's uh, narrow interests, that violated the law, including uh, as recently as today an opinion by the General Accounting Office that said laws were violated in withholding uh, the transfer of this money that had been voted by Congress to the Ukrainians. Um, and yet the likely outcome is that the president will not be convicted by the Senate. He will get away with this. He will continue. The opportunity to do this again will continue. And the people around the president will be rewarded for stonewalling and obstructing justice, for not giving information to the Congress, uh, for not responding to subpoenas, um, uh, for being uh, sycophants and not fulfilling their responsibilities to the institutions that they're running, such as um, Pompeo. Um, and you know, to me, you know, there's another dimension to that, which is this makes the world more dangerous for the United States. If we start being seen as, um, you know, transactional and that the way to win the favor of the U.S. is to do something for the president or the president's men, shadowy, not shadowy, legal, not legal, 
uh, you you end up heading in the direction of Vladimir Putin, who some estimate is the richest man in the world because he's the most corrupt man in the world. Uh, and I just wonder about, you know, looking at it from not a legal perspective or political perspective, but just plainly from a national security perspective, this is a dangerous, slippery slope, no? I agree. And look, I think that there are real economic risks to having a very corrupt system. Your economy doesn't run efficiently. People don't benefit the same way. It's harder to figure out how to navigate your way to success and a good life if you have a corrupt economy. Um, but in terms of like real and significant dangers to America and where we are in the world, you know, I spent a lot of time working on the House Intelligence Committee. And a lot of people around the world risk their lives to provide the United States with information and assistance because they believe that we're the good guys. They're, they believe that we are not like the corrupt dictators in the countries with, where they are from who misuse legal process to put their opponents in jail, that we're not quid pro quo people, that we play by a transparent set of rules, and that we believe in fundamental fairness. And especially in the Cold War in places like Russia, that message has been very compelling. And the part of the reason we won the Cold War was that people throughout the Warsaw Pact states looked at us and said, that is a system that I prefer to be in. I don't want to be in this corrupt patronage system that I am in. But if the United States is no different than everyone else, then why would they ever help us? Why would they choose to join us? Why would they ally with us? Why would they trade with us? All kinds of other things, because we are no different to them than other corrupt dictators around the world. And we have always been an example of an alternative. And it's very hard right now to say that, especially if we don't say this is an aberration and it will not stand. So... And we only got a couple of minutes left, and there's plenty that we could discuss here. But, but, um, you know, without revealing your age, I, I know that you're old enough to remember when the United States attacked and killed the second most important person in Iran. Do you do you remember back? To <laughs> like seven days ago. Seven. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, you know, most most Americans, that's like 26 news cycles ago, and and. And, you know, that works to the benefit of the president of the United States, because the president of the United States went in, took this action, did so without a, a, a sound planning process, apparently been contemplating it for a long time. Um, and although two other administrations decided it was not a good idea to do this, went ahead and did this thing, which could have many destabilizing effects in the region uh, for some time to come. And we're already seeing some of those with the Iraqis wanting U.S. troops out. Uh, and so forth, and said the reason he did it was that the Iranians were planning to attack four U.S. embassies, uh, and the imminence of this attack warranted this, which also, you know, created a kind of legal rationale behind it. Um, uh, but of course, there's actually no evidence of any of this, uh, and the president once again benefits from having lots of scandals because we stopped talking about it, uh, and yet it's. It's kind of a big deal that the president seems to think that he can go out and kill anybody um, because they're a really bad person in his eyes, which 
by the way, is what he said in one particular tweet. And before we leave that subject altogether and leave this interview altogether, I just wanted your take on that. Yeah, I think what he's doing here is really dangerous. Um, and I don't, I'm old enough not only to have remembered the strike on Soleimani, but also the Bush administration's trumped up case for war where they actually showed evidence that turned out to be twisted, but also old enough to remember the movie Memento, which is a great movie, if your listeners haven't seen it, about a guy who can only remember one day at a time. And that is sort of how America is right now. We are sort of losing the sense of anything beyond this news cycle. We have this vague recollection, like maybe something happened before, and maybe that's significant to where we're going. But unless we can step out of this and start having a longer perspective that appreciates both context and consequences, we are buffeted by the craziness of Trump, and we are sort of at the whims of other people who are better able to plan for what is to come in this world. And, and that puts us at a real strategic disadvantage because many, many things take time, right? Just in your personal life, losing weight takes time. Saving for retirement takes time. There are many things, big things that we need done take time, like rebuilding infrastructure, addressing climate change. There are all kinds of things that we need to be able to say, take a longer view and step out of these mayfly-like news cycles where we forget that Trump took us to the brink of war over nothing over no intelligence that he was willing to share with the American people. That is really problematic. And so as exciting as these news cycles are, as terrifying as these news cycles are, I really urge everyone to try and keep the context and the consequences in mind. I have to say that's a very disturbing comment, mostly because you mentioned how long it takes to lose weight, um, which (laughs) I, I find, you know, personally disturbing, although you followed that up with saving for retirement. Um, and at my age, you would think that would be done, but no, that hasn't been done either. So I actually can't think of anything else beyond those two things. Um, although I, I would add that you mentioned a movie and you mentioned Memento, it's a good movie, an interesting one. One of the movies that I thought about when I heard all of these you know, reports that, you know, any day now, Soleimani would do some attack that would be bad because he's done a bunch in the past. I thought of a different movie, which a Tom Cruise movie called Minority Report. Uh, And I don't know if you remember Minority Report, but Minority Report was about a time in the future where um, these uh, psychically empowered uh, precogs would be able to anticipate when somebody would commit a crime and the police would arrest them before they committed the crime. Um, And, you know, this is this, you know, kind of dovetails with the GOP definition of imminence, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, we think they might do something, and uh, because our instincts are they might do something, we will punish them now. Not that Soleimani hasn't done a a thousand terrible things. There's just, you know, international law and American law to contend with, uh, and they they don't seem to think that matters at all. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that their definition of imminence, because they they don't even really have a standard of it, it's sort of like, I believe that this thing will happen in the future, therefore it will, Um, And then I'm going to react as if it already had, as opposed to, I think this thing might happen in the future, and how do I stop it from happening in the future? How do I change the decision cycle of the person who's doing that? Like, spoiler on the movie, one of the things that you discover is that, like, people actually can change at the last minute. 
Um, and things aren't always what you think they're going to be. And I think when it comes to things like the JCPOA, the Iran deal that stopped Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, Republicans seem to believe that Iran could never be deterred. And I kept saying to people, yeah, Iran is gathering the ingredients, but they haven't decided if they're going to bake the cake. And anyone who has tried to bake a cake knows, sometimes you get a little distracted. The door, the doorbell rings, you get a phone call, something else happens, you decide, nah, I don't feel like a cake anyway. Just because you put all the stuff on the counter does not mean that you're actually going to do it. Um, and I think that their definition of imminence does not allow for the possibility that it might not happen. And you really have to figure out, is it really going to happen? And you have to be willing to prove it to people before you act, because otherwise you're just being arbitrary. Absolutely right. Mika, I'm so glad we could get you here to join us. I know your schedule has been busy and we've been trying and trying and we're going to try again to get you to come back. I would uh, but, love it. But, you know, the, your article was terrific and I, I, I recommend that people go and read it at Lawfare. Um, and your commentary on a regular basis is terrific. So watch Mika uh, when she appears on TV or follow her on uh, Twitter. Um, she and also the folks that she's working with at Third Way are doing great work. Thanks very much. And, and please come back again soon, Mika. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Our next guest is Fred Hochberg, former chairman and CEO of the U.S. Export-Import Bank and now the author of an important new book called Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word. Uh, it has gotten terrific reviews, including a great review in the, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, congratulations on the book, Fred. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited by it. Uh, well, so, so are a lot of other people. And of course, you know, the secret to a great book is, is, is to know the subject, which you do, to write well, which you do, and to have good timing. Uh, and... <laughs> You know, you, you you really couldn't you couldn't have better timing than you've had with this book. You've come out in a week in which we have had not one but two trade deals. And so let me talk about those a little bit, and then we'll talk about the book more. Um, we, as as our listeners know, we record this uh, uh, episode each week on a on a Thursday afternoon. And so before the episode, I was watching um, the president of the United States, and he had he he made some uh, comments from the White House following up on the impeachment and, and so forth. And his main sort of case against, you know, being distracted by the impeachment, which he considers to be a hoax, um, was that he made uh, in, in, in the China deal that was signed this week, the most important or the biggest trade deal ever in US history. And then of course, today the Senate approved um, uh, USMCA, which some people call NAFTA 2.0, I call it NAFTA 1.1. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, he 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 called that one of the most important trade deals ever. And he said these are the two most important trade deals ever. So let's just back check the president. Um, uh, what do you think? Are they the two most important trade deals ever? Well, no. Uh, one, we know that President Trump only speaks in superlatives. Everything, you know, uh, many years ago, when uh, years before he ran for office, there was a survey in New York that 96% of uh, New Yorkers knew who Donald Trump was. And his reaction was, who are the 4%? How dare they not know who I am? So we have to understand where this is coming from. Um, 
I, you know, on USMCA, or as you refer to it as NAFTA 1.1, the fact that we got 385 votes in the House of Representatives and 89 votes for it in the Senate, um, we have never seen such lopsided majorities for a trade deal, uh, I believe, ever. And so I take that as a strong sign. And I was talking with someone earlier today, Bill Reins, a really smart guy at CSIS, and it may have been the, you know, a rare, comp, rare confluence of, of factors that under President Trump, who is such a protectionist, maybe that gave some cover to people who were afraid of trade deals because they're not protectionist enough. And so uh, I would say that that feels like it's, you know, I make a reference in the book that USMCA is like an iPhone 8 versus an iPhone 7. It's certainly better but it's not dramatically different. So I think that's the case. But I think I take a lot of comfort in the fact that it got such a big majority. Well, uh, do, you, do you think relative to, like, I mean, just, just let's just take them one at a time. Let me summarize the NAFTA deal. Let me summarize, I mean, no, let me summarize the China deal first. And let right. me summarize the China deal in a way, you know, I'm going to just tell you what I think of the China deal. And Somebody might say, well, that's a biased view. I, you know, I'm a former trade official. This is what I think. I think that the China deal, which the president said was worth $250 billion, isn't worth $250 billion. I, I think the China deal is not a breakthrough with China. In fact, I think it's a surrender. The president declared a trade war. It's cost us tens of billions of dollars to help bail out farmers who are hurt by it. And at the end of the day, this deal restores trade via a mechanism which doesn't always work, which is um, uh, the promise of the Chinese to buy goods, um, but also they're promising to buy goods at a level that is a third lower than they were actually buying goods before all this started. So, so you know, it's, it's, it's essentially the president retreating from his war, but he's, 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 bringing us to a point which is worse than the point we started from. And the Chinese might not do this. It's very hard to enforce it. Furthermore, the deal doesn't actually um, address any of the big issues that exist between the U.S. and China on trade, which is clearly the most important trading relationship in the world. And he, he, he leaves all those for a, a phase two, which will happen after the election. So, you know, to me, it's not only not the biggest trade deal in history. It's not actually a trade deal. It's a Band-Aid to cover up a self-inflicted wound. What do you think? Well, I would say, uh, the sense is this is a ceasefire or a truce for the moment. Um, but I think a ceasefire or a truce is better than, than continuation of escalation and continuation of where we were. That said, there's still so much uncertainty, and that has really chilled both the Chinese market and made it very difficult for them. But it's also chilled the global economy. I mean, the global economy could be doing a lot better were it not for this trade deal that was hanging over it for the last few years that we imposed on the world. I mean, part of the issue here, I think, David, is that President Trump believes in sort of unilateral action. You know, we're the largest economy in the world. We're the most powerful nation in the world. We're going to call the shots. We don't have to work with anybody if we don't want to. Presidents Obama, Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush one, Reagan were more of a mind that we've got to work with others. And working together, we will get 
maybe not fast, but we'll get better, more lasting results. Those are two just very different views, and that's part of what we're clashing over right now. Um, well, uh, okay. What what do you think? Let's just sort of set aside the rhetoric and and the bombast. Mm -hmm. What what do you think's next? You know that needs to be addressed in the U.S.-China relationship. Well, I, you know, what I think needs to be addressed next, and uh, it's the really, as you commented, is some of the most difficult issues, and that is they are the Chinese government, and we saw this, I saw this as chairman of the Export-Import Bank, heavily, heavily subsidizes and supports its industries, particularly those that are exporting. And that has an unlevel playing field around the world. Steel, we've, we've all read a lot about steel and heard about in the last year or two, that's only one area that the Chinese government does subsidize. So that's, that's a very difficult issue for them to get weaned off of and stop doing. So I am not very optimistic about that. They have talked a lot about uh, not stealing technology, which is the fancy word for that is tech transfer, uh, but it's really stealing technology or forced uh, joint ventures so that an American company has to have a, a Chinese partner and the Chinese partner can then take their trade secrets. Um, we'll have to see if that really happens. Right now, you know, that, that's a hope, um, but it's not clear. I will say I spoke to some people in financial services that were very optimistic about this deal, uh, that it, it, it will much more put them on a level playing field, the credit card companies, than they have ever had with China. So that is something we wanted. Um, you know, it's easy, as you and I know, on any trade deal to find what's wrong with it. And I'm certainly not trying to give uh, give an easy mark here. But I think there looks like there's some more things here um, than I first thought I would see. But one of the big caveats I also think about is in agriculture, where uh, you mentioned I mean, they're talking about $50 billion worth of commodity exports. The question is, if I'm an Iowa farmer and I was out in Iowa working on my book, am I really going to trust that I'm going to start planting and buying more acreage and trying to produce more to sell to China, knowing the spigot could be turned off at any moment, that at a moment's notice, this could all go away? I think that's going to be much harder to execute. Yeah. I, and by the way, per my earlier point, it's $50 billion promised over two years, impossible to enforce. But in the year before we were uh, the trade war started, we were on track to do something like um, thirty, uh, something like thirty-nine billion dollars right. for just that Close year. To Forty billion, right? Yeah. So, so, so that means that that you know, if had we continued on that pace, we'd be. Mm -hmm. You know, 80 billion over two years, and instead we're talking about 50. So it, that's why yeah. there's a retreat. Before we get to I your book, let's. 50, I thought the 50 was an additional 50 over uh, the, the old base. As, as I read it, and as Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post read it, it was not. But mm -hmm. we'll see. Right. We'll see what happens. Right. Um, right. It you know it sort of hardly matters since it's unenforceable. And as as you and I have talked about, you know, offline, you know. Um, the the not not you know the, the the U.S. farmers have a problem, which is the Chinese, because of the trade war, have established trading relationships with other countries, 
And those other countries aren't just going to give up, you know, you know, tail between the legs and go home just because the U.S. wants the business back. And, you know, if the economy slows in the world, uh, if there's a problem someplace in the world uh, uh, and China uh, has less demand, they're not going to buy as much. So, well, one of the big factors about China and soybeans, which has not been reported, and that is the soybeans are large, often used for feedstock for pigs. And 25% of the pig population in China has died. So who knows how much they're really going to need right now because of this terrible devastation that's happened to uh, the pig. I don't know if you call it pig a herd, but uh, uh, the amount of pigs in China right now. Yeah, as a result of, of, of disease. Um, now, before yeah. we get to the to, to the to the book, we we'll just take a quick look at USMCA. That's a little bit more substantive agreement. The reason I call it NAFTA 1.1 is because it's not really an entirely new agreement. What it does is it fills in some gaps in in old NAFTA. It 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 updates a few things um, uh, within the context of the old NAFTA agreement. Um, but it, but it's not a wholesale revision. And in terms of new uh, goals or, or or economic opportunities, it's it's the the, the 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 scale is not gigantic. I agree. I mean, I, I use the comment in my book as I said, it's an iPhone eight versus an iPhone seven. It's better. The battery lasts better. The screen's better. But it's not a whole new deal. And that same thing with USMCA. The only thing I think a remark about USMCA is the fact that it, that um, Robert Lighthizer, USTR, worked with the Democrats and working together, they create they made something that was acceptable to a large portion of the Democratic caucus, which was not the case before. Um, now, also in the course of this week, we've seen trade figure in the news in a in a third way, and that is that. Apparently, uh, via back channels, the uh, the administration threatened to impose uh, trade sanctions uh, on the Europeans if they did not go along with uh, the administration policies on Iran, uh, which is not really the way this game is played. Um, and 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 yet another sign that that the Trump administration uses trade more often than not. As a cudgel, as a as a as a kind of a weapon. Now, you know your book, which you know has many many merits, but I think one of the the reasons that people ought to go out and buy this book is it's likely to be used as a kind of a blueprint for an incoming Democratic administration. Should we have such a thing? Um, is 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 about the future and how do we recover? And so. That you know, the first question I have with regard to that is how how do you deal with going from an abnormal president with an abnormal view towards trade policy and getting back to something that's more um, constructive? I think that's going to be very difficult. I I share your concern. I think, and related to pulling out of the Iran deal. Uh, and pulling back from the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, will certainly add questions of how reliable is the United States in any of these dealings. Uh, I saw this firsthand, David, uh, 
as chairman of the Export Import Bank, you know, when we when the authority lapsed and for just under half a year we could not make any loans to support U.S. exports, it cast a real question about our reliability. Is the United States a reliable entity to work with? Um, that is a shocking change of events, and that is the damage to that is is maybe subtle, but it's also going to be very long term. Now, you know, assuming that one were able to repair that damage and might do it with a you know president who reaches out to allies, who says they will honor agreements, who makes some kind of effort in that regard. Um, another problem, however, is the core problem that your book addresses, which is substantial portions of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party do think trade is a four-letter word, which is not a reflection on the American educational system, um, but uh, you know, rather is a reflection on uh, the fact that people feel that global trade takes away jobs, makes them less secure, isn't fair, hasn't helped. Now, it's not true necessarily, but there is some truth in it. And I'm wondering, you know, I mean, the first point, the key point you're trying to make, it seems to me, is we need this. We need to cast this in a new light. How do you cast it in a new light? Well, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been some surveys lately, I'm just pulling up one that Gallup did, and their most recent survey, record high in the U.S., the implication of trade as positive for the U.S. So the number of Americans who see trade as an opportunity for growth versus trade as a threat is, is now at a level of 74% see as an opportunity, and it's gone up since, in the last five, six years, about 25 points. So, uh, I think there has been a shift. Uh, there was a Wall Street Journal poll this summer that showed two-thirds of Democrats and Republicans were actually for trade. Now, there is a vocal minority that's against it. Um, and the fact that um, the states of Ohio and Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, Wisconsin got badly hurt uh, from some of the trade with NAFTA and they happen to be key presidential electoral college states, has certainly made that much more entrenched. But if you look at the general polling, not I'm not I didn't look at polling in Ohio per se, but if you look at general polling, um, it's actually been more and more popular. Now, granted, more and more of the country is living on the coast, and more and more of the country, is, you know, has not seen the downsides of trade. What we what we have to really understand is trade will have winners and losers. And if we won't have a real honest conversation about that, it's hard to get people to really throw off their misconceptions and their myths. If we just think, you know what, there are going to be some losers and we got to deal with that, that at least puts people will trust us more. Well, I, I, I agree with you all. To, you know, I, I, I was out there, as you know, in the Clinton administration yeah. uh, for a while running the International Trade Administration, giving a lot of talks about NAFTA, uh, giving a lot of talks about uh, the World Trade Organization about the merits of trade. And it was very much a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. And we're 4% of the world economy. And so right. we need to sell to the other 96%. And when people said, but but I've seen people lose their jobs, we said, well, you know, we'll take care of that. But we shrugged it off. Uh, we minimized right. it. And and I think it was a, I think it was a mistake. 
Um, and, you know, there are a variety of different prescriptions out there for it. Elizabeth Warren running for president is underscoring the point that, you know, it's been very much a corporate dominated process and that uh, issues uh, that give other sides an advantage and cost and so forth, like labor and environment, need to be addressed. Now, those things came up 25 years ago when we were doing this stuff as well. Um, but again, we we tried to minimize that and said, we'll deal with it via some other way. There needs to be a new mix. You've talked a little bit about, we've got to say, yes, there will be losers. What do you do for the losers? Well, I um, I think what we have to do is really have a, just really begin to rethink our education system. Uh, and I think what we need to do is try a number of things. There's a guy who I uh, talked to it about the book. His name is Rusty Justice. He has a company called BitSource in, um, in Pikeville, Kentucky. And he worked and trained a number of former coal miners into doing coding. And he's got a small little company, and that's a pilot that works. There's not a pilot. It's a company that's working well in a rural area. Someone like uh, Governor Gina Raimondo has been uh, working with making sure that um, IT skills are taught in elementary school and through that through K through 12, and maybe not K through 12, but elementary school through 12th grade. She's also working with the electric boat company so that they can train people to take those jobs. So I think we need, you know, we have a federal system. We've got to try things in cities and rural areas. We've got to try different programs, and we're going to have to use a range of them. Part of it is, I think Republicans believe frequently that Companies should do this all on their own, and government has no role. And Democrats frequently have said the government should be doing all this. We don't trust the private sector. We're going to have to use some private sector, some public sector. Both sides are going to have to give a little bit. They're going to have to shed some of their partisan biases in coming in the door to make this thing work. Because with AI and automation, the trade was just a warm-up act for the kind of job disruption we're going to see with, when AI, artificial intelligence, and more and more automation comes into our workforce. Yeah, now, of course, there are other elements of this as well. So, for example, you're absolutely right about artificial intelligence and more automation and the consequences of that in terms of job disruption. But those also, you know, reflect changes in the global economy where more and more of our trade is in what was generally called services, information services particularly, more and more of what we exchange with other countries is not a thing that goes through customs. It's a bunch of electrons that go through, uh, you know, fiber optic or through the air. And um, we don't really know how to count those. We don't really know how to assess right. the benefit to our economy. We don't really know how to assess what that means for a trade balance. We don't know how to monetize them in the same way with tariffs. We don't know how to ensure that those uh, trade flows are not disrupted by cyber conflict or by uh, what you referred to earlier in terms of uh, theft of technologies or insecure uh, network systems and so forth. This seems to be a whole new world of trade out there that's not about boxcars full of X right. going from country Y to Z. And, 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 and frankly, trade officials aren't really trained to deal with that. How do we deal with that? I agree with you. I, one of my concerns about all this stuff with USMCA this week and China is 
it isn't really dealing sufficiently with the whole service economy. We are a service economy in this country. We entertainment, financial services, tourism. These are things that we excel at, and we should be putting those front and center when we talk about trade and how we're going to get a bigger piece of the pie. And they seem to be afterthoughts. We we seem to talk about cars and planes and trucks and, and hard goods, which are important, but they're not the full game. And they're certainly not talking about so many things that we're particularly dominant in and strong in. So that's my concern. I agree that the, you know, besides the counting, we're not saying, hey, we, how do we make our entertainment business, which is $770 billion today, even bigger overseas? How do we make sure that there's still people want to see American movies? They like American Levi's. They like, which is sort of cultural icon. We should be finding ways to promote that a lot more. And that benefit will accrue to us enormously. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. You've got this book. It's got great reviews. It's on a subject that's extremely important, so important that the president sees it as the perfect counterweight to what's going on in terms of impeachment. But in terms of the the average reader, um, I just want to give you a chance here at the end to sort of say, you know, here's why I wrote this. Here's why you should read it. You know, why why does the average person who's not a trade wonk like you or me want to spend this time on this topic? So I would thank you. I would say the following, David. I said, one, trade does have winners and losers. And we, if we can have an honest conversation about that, we could address some of the concerns and faults that many Americans have about trade and legitimately begin to address them. And two, you know, trade deals are not about jobs. They're about a lot of things, but they're not really about jobs. And politicians for decades have been touting trade deals as that they're really great for jobs. They're not really about jobs. So one, let's have an honest conversation about it. Two, um, I trace six products in this book, from the Taco Bowl to the banana to the iPhone, which is, which is assembled in China but comes from many different countries to what's an American car, the Honda Odyssey being the most American car on the road today, and talking about services like education and entertainment, is to understand, wait, trade is here to stay. You know what? China may not be here in 100 or 200 years, but trade has been, is, has been here for a decade, for millennium, and it will continue to be for millennium. We're not going to be able to retreat from the world. So understanding that, having an appreciation of how it's made your life better, and the fact is, it's, you know, there are, there are things we have to deal with. Nothing is perfect. Someone described trade as like tofu. You know, it'll take on the flavor of who's talking about it. People who, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, think it's the reason for all the ills in America has destroyed communities and jobs. And there are others who say it's been very beneficial. Um, it's been both. It's been both beneficial and it has hurt communities. So if we can start to really address that, I think we can come to a much fresher view about trade. Thank you very much. I, you know, I think it's it's a, it's an important topic. Everybody says, you know, at the end of the day, you know, as was the Clinton slogan, you know, it's the economy stupid. The upcoming election is going to come down to kitchen table issues, issues of jobs, opportunity, um, uh, economic security, and so forth. And ultimately, those depend on just a few big factors. One of those, which right now is highly polarized, oversimplified. Um, and difficult to discuss is trade. 
one of the reasons I think this book is so important is it's not only one of the most insightful books into what's going on in trade by a guy who has a huge amount of experience in this regard, um, but it is a broadly accessible book. In other words, the average person can pick it up, read it, and should, because it talks about an important part of their future. If you live in a country that's got only 4% of the world population and the rest of the world economy is growing faster than our economy, then every single person out there is going to have a future that is uh, affected by how we trade, whether we're successful at it, whether we benefit as much as we can from global markets and how we protect ourselves against disruptions. This book does that. I congratulate you on the book, Fred. Uh, I thank you for joining us, and I encourage everybody out there, the tens of thousands of people who listen to Deep State Radio each week, um, to go to Amazon, order the book, um, and, uh, and I think you'll benefit from it. So thank you, Fred. Thank you. Very generous, David. Thank you, and always good to be on your program. Well, hope, hopefully you'll be back again um, soon. Uh, and uh, and 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 we'll we'll talk to you about even more things. But we'll remind people that the name of the book is "Trade Is Not a Four Letter Word: How Six Everyday Products Make a Case for Trade" uh, by Fred Hochberg. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>